Welcome to Basket Sprawl, where we will be discussing basketball, life, and everything in between. I am joined today by two special guests. I will let them introduce themselves. Hey, this is uh, DJ Slam Dunk Defunk and DJ IVK. We got IVK and Slam Dunk Defunk. Where are you guys from? What what, what are you guys doing here in uh, here in LA? I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm uh, just visiting to have a good time. I'm just up from San Diego in this beautiful, hot, hot L.A. day. Hot. Hot indeed. Well, we are in the cool AC right now at an undisclosed location just south of Beverly Hills. And we are going to get right into today's episode, uh, podcast only this week. And we will discuss three topics. So let's go. First topic is NBA predictions. Now, Slam, IVK. Mm-hmm. It's been a crazy offseason so far. Crazy. Absurd. I've gotten numerous texts from friends that I've talked basketball with for years that have texted me, screw this, I'm a baseball fan now. So um, it's just been helter-skelter in, uh, in free agency. So I can't think of a better time, as uh, all the teams are so in flux, to make grandiose, outrageous predictions for next season. So... Let's, uh, let's get into these predictions. Who do we think is going to be the MVP of next season? MVP of next season? MVP, yeah. I got to take Isaiah Thomas on this one. Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> Isaiah Thomas all the way. It's a hot take. He shoots the hoops. <laughs> he dribbles the ball. I guess so. All right, IVK, what team is Isaiah Thomas currently on? <laughs> I know he used, definitely used to be on the Celtics, that's for sure. He that did. Years ago. He so, did. So now he's on another team, and I bet they'll do well. Currently unsigned free agent, Isaiah <laughs> Thomas. As a, we're talking MVP of the NBA, correct? Not like the Shanghai B-League? Right, right, right. The NBA. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or like, you know, the Israeli League or whatever Turkey Turkish League is. I guess I was kind of ambiguous. I just said MVP. Yeah. He could play in like a rec league this, you know, come I March. Like he'll Isaiah probably t- get signed by the Hornets. Most valuable player or most <laughs> vulnerable player? Let's do both. What do you got? What do you got, Slam? Uh, See, I go Isaiah Thomas for both. <laughs> He's definitely in a vulnerable spot. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, it's, it's LeBron. You think it's going to be LeBron? He's new to the Lakers, LA. I mean, he could. they could vote for him every year. I feel like they're just like, who's going to. Harden's not going to have another like monster no, no, year. No. I think. I think. West- it, they're not going to give it to him again. I don't think LeBron's got another MVP in him. I think the league is at a point right now where they just accept LeBron's greatness and kind of like move on. I mean, they didn't give it. He had no shot at it last year, even though he was, in my opinion, easily the MVP. And so for that reason alone, all these guys are joining teams and super teams. My front runner for MVP is Anthony Davis right now, stranded on the Pelicans. Mm. Uh, there was some late season momentum last year for him. And uh, who knows, if he doesn't get any more superstars and the load's on him, if he could bring you know, the Pelicans to the playoffs in the West, that, that's, that would be my safe bet. How far did they get this past year? They got to the second, second round of the playoffs with just AD. They swept the Blazers, remember? Oh, yeah, they, yeah, they swept the Blazers. Well, I'm looking up prop bets right now for NBA awards for next season, but I guess they're just so... Everything is so in flux, you can't even find prop bets. So, what about the Greek freak? The Greek freak is Giannis Antetokounmpo going to win Most Improved Player? Is he going to? No. Uh, well, if he if he shoots like forty five percent from three, 
which he won't because he can't shoot. Hopefully he will. But let's, uh, let's actually move on to the championship. Let, let's get really grandiose here. And, and, you know, nothing more relevant than talking about who's going to win the championship in July. Uh, so let's do it. Who do you think, IVK? See, I'm jumping on your bandwagon here. Anthony Davis, the Unibrow, and the Pelicans are driving through mm. these playoffs. I love it. They're taking <laughs> on the men, and they're beating them down. Which men? All of them. They're taking on all the men. <laughs> all the men. Anthony Davis on his own. That's why he's the MVP. That's why he gets some money. Not all of it, obviously. He's a young man. Well, of course. Not all the money. He'll get there. Right. Yeah. Being an old man? <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he's he's probably not even at the at the limit yet, right? He's no, not he's cap. not even he's, close to the he's, limit. He's two years, three years in. Oh, right? sure. Right? I mean, he's got a bright future ahead of him. Definitely. And uh, I think he's going places with these Pelicans. I would say they're flying high. As Pelicans are... I've, I feel like Pelicans fly medium heights in real life. Like relative to other birds? Yeah. So who flies higher? Let's look that up. Well, what... Well, well, you look that up. Who do you think is going to win the championship this upcoming uh, season? Warriors, Slam? Warriors over Celtics. Warriors over Celtics. That sounds like a reasonable pick. What do we got? Well, we got the max height for Pelican flight. Well, we got the highest flying bird is the Griffin Vulture. That can fly at 37,000 feet. Whoa. It's about the same as a commercial airline. Okay, so there we have it. The Pelicans will not win the championship this year because the Griffin Vulture. Is that right? The Griffin Vulture? Yeah. Griffin Vultures all the way. Exactly. That's the new Seattle team, the new expansion team, the Seattle Griffin Vultures. The Griffin Vultures. However, a Pelican can fly 10,000 feet in the air, which is higher than I would have guessed. Higher than Slam would have guessed, but not high enough for this year's championship. Not high enough for this year's championship. And that's a little discussion on upcoming NBA talk. Anyway, have a great day, and let's eat cake. And just before we go, we have a... Well, you know what, IVK, take it away. What do we have? What do we have? Well, as an ode to Anthony Davis, in the words of Ogden Nash, a wonderful bird is a pelican. His bill can hold more than his belly can. He can hold in his beak enough for a week, but I'm damned if I see how the hell he can. (laughs) All right, there you go. Let's transition right on to our favorite scenes in basketball movies. Um, or basketball scenes in non-basketball movies. Or basketball scenes in non-basketball movies. Yeah, so why don't we just dive in. Um, my favorite, real, this is, re- this is real, really gets me emotional talking about this scene. Sure. But uh, He Got Game, mm-hmm. Jesus Shuttlesworth versus uh, Daddy Shuttle- Shuttlesworth, Jake Shuttlesworth, I believe is, is Denzel's character's name. Really? They face off. It's a classic story. It's Ray Allen versus Denzel. They're supposed to play one-on-one. I think the script says Ray Allen's character, like, beats Denzel's character 11 to 0. Spike went up to Denzel before they started shooting the scene and just said, let him have it. And Denzel uh, authentically, candidly gets like the first five buckets against Ray Allen. And then Ray Allen's kind of like, uh, I'm going to shut it down and proceeded to like score the next 11 straight. And it was all real basketball. One of my favorite film basketball scenes. Um, really great for that movie's like story. Lo- love He Got Game. Um, yeah, Jesus Shuttlesworth for the win. That's 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 one of my favorite basketball that's scenes. That's a good one. That's a good one. What do we got? I think uh, we're talking we're talking basketball scenes for me. We're talking along came Polly. Mm, Iceman. When, when Ben Stiller and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman have to play pickup while discussing relationships, and Philip Seymour Hoffman just uh, shouts out, "Let's it rain." 
<laughs> make it rain, all those great things while just railing things off the backboard. And then a big sweaty hairy guy takes off his shirt and goes up and plays Tufty on Ben Stiller mm. and rubs his sweaty hairy belly against Ben Stiller's face. It's not really that funny, but no. I often watch it. <laughs> Late we, at night. Hey, we, we've all been there, haven't we, Slam? Yeah, we Big, have. hairy oh. chest in our face. Hey, Harlan, be quiet, buddy. Harlan. That's Harlan, guys. He's a very famous Instagram dog, but he's quite unruly. Harlan the Corgi. Go give him a follow. Okay. IVK, what, what about you? What, what, what are we thinking? Basketball scenes in movies. So I haven't seen a ton of basketball movies. Okay, that's fine. But uh, I am going to go with when the alley-oop was invented mm. by Will Ferrell in Semi-Pro. Mm. Classic. Yeah. Coffee black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, not one of Will Ferrell's best. Probably not in the top five. Mm. Uh, but you know, a great scene, comeback, they're losing, halftime, he goes into the, the locker room. His mom comes to His him in a, in a dream. Revelation, right? right? And he comes back, throws down the alley-oop, and the rest is history. The rest is history. I have to imagine the inception of the alley-oop had to be vaguely similar to its depiction in Semi-Pro. Well, let's, let's take a look. Let's do some research. I mean, if it was in the 70s, then it was definitely heavily influenced by some, some drugs and some, uh, some hallucinations. Some Love Me Sexy from, by Jackie Moon was definitely, that's his hit song in Semi-Pro. Music like that must have been blasting while the alley-oop was being discussed. I hear you. At I its infancy. Sure. Here's a little history in the alley-oop for you, directly from Wikipedia. Mm. In the 1950s, some players began utilizing jumping abilities by grabbing balls in midair and then dunking. Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and Jumpin' Johnny Green would frequently grab errant shots by teammates and dunk them. I believe that's called goaltending. Now if it's outside the cylinder. All right. Well, we'll we'll discuss the the ethics of of, of the alley oop on a different pod. Let us keep with the movie scenes. Thanks for that uh for that history update though. Interesting. In the fifties, players started utilizing jumping skills. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it was a, it was an innovation in sports. Hmm. The forties were a very unexciting time for basketball. Hmm. Before that, no jumping. Not a lot of jump. Well, they were set shot. They went always they were the jump shot is a relatively new invention. Well, let's let's get back to movie slam. You got another you got another movie scene, a basketball scene. Well, there's the Catwoman basketball scene. Oh, Catwoman! Infamous. Him one on one. Catwoman v Benjamin Bratt versus Benjamin Bratt, and in about a 45 second scene, there's something like 127 cuts, um, and it is it's just a masterpiece in bad cinema. Mm. It's, it involves Halle Berry dribbling the ball quickly between her legs and the kids going crazy. Like that's impressive. And she runs off a wall and kind of just like gets slingshotted up and dunks it. Yeah. A lot of traveling, a lot of double dribbling, a lot, a lot of, of physics dribbling. laws being broken. And it's, do, I haven't seen any other part of the movie. Are they romantically involved? Was that a flirtatious mm -hmm. basketball mm -hmm. game? Yes, it, it, indeed it was, Slam. They, they were romantically involved. I'll say this about Catwoman. Terrible movie. Mm -hmm. That scene is the worst scene in that terrible movie. And so I think about, like they cancel each other out. And that scene becomes a phenomenal scene. Oh, it's an instant classic. Sure, sure. Definitely. Catwoman scene. Absolutely. Um, let's see, though. I'm racking my brain, racking my... Oh, you know what? What about the... Uh, in Glory Road. You ever see Glory Road? About uh, Texas Western? <laughs> 
I think that's the can't say I have. <laughs> I can't say I have. With, uh, sure, the story of the first uh, first team with five black fellas to, to win a to start uh, right to start a, uh, NCAA championship. Right. And but in in the in the beginning of that movie, kind of there. Remember the Titans run to Gettysburg. They have a five v five white versus black basketball game in the cafeteria with two garbage cans and like a balled up menu. It's a good difference. It's a good contrast to the Remember the Titans because in the Remember the Titans, they all, you know, bond at Gettysburg so they can play together. In Glory Road, the team bonds so that the black players can start and then the white players can sit on, <laughs> sit on the bench. And I think they learned a lot. About right. Well, and there's now that I remember too, there's a truly tasteless part of, of Glory Glory Road where like after the game when they're like reconciling with each other it cuts to a white dude asking a black dude saying something like so when you guys say it's bad that means it's good and and then they're like yeah and so like they're teaching each other lingo and we'll just not mention this movie anymore do we have any other basketball scenes i'd like to go back to glory road <laughs> let me do some research on glory road no, not glory road i mean what about space jam what about bill murray's Jam. Assist, steal, assist at the end of Space Jam. I think that's a classic. Overrated. Overrated? No. No? Not overrated? You know what's on my mind is Black Panther. You know, there's not a lot of basketball, but there's the kid mm. playing, you know, in the in the court, and it's a nice it's a nice setup scene, right? It's in the beginning, mm -hmm. it's in the end. In the end, you know, that they're shooting the hoops and then the, the, the big spacecraft comes down. It's a it's a really good uh Cinematographer sure. type uh, sure. cinema cinematography exactly to, to frame one more time. Don't worry about that to frame just the uh, the and the interesting the setting yeah and and good nice bringing that up because I've always thought about this about the Black Panther scene. So the first scene takes place in the early nineties, right? Run TMC. It's all about the warrior, like because it's in the Bay and sure. they're like, I want to be Tim Hardaway or something like that in Black Panther. And in the first scene, they got good ball movement. The kids are uh, passing and screening away and setting back doors. Leads to a to an open layup for a for a young invoke Njoku. Uh, I think it's a young Njoku is his name. Whatever. Michael B. Jordan's character later has an incredible layup that was created with good ball movement. Here's my point. At the end of the movie, when they come back, it's I mean they're all over the place. They're playing iso ball, Charles Bar. They're playing hero ball, Ernie. It's just a bunch of hero ball. No one's getting a good shot, and then they're yes, they're distracted by I think they call it a space Bugatti comes uh, on the court and You're parks right. up. You're right. Yeah, kids get distracted so easily these days. I think it was Kugler really making a comment on you know I, right on childhood today versus childhood in the nineties. I think Kugler, it's Kugler making a point about how basketball has gotten soft. How basketball in the 90s was tough and you had to, you know, it's you, a thinking man's game, but now it's just all about do you think Kugler, space Bugatti. Kugler's a Warriors fan, probably. Do you think he's a big Warriors fan? He's a huge Warriors fan. Is he? I, yeah, huge, huge. He's, he's from the Bay. He's a Bay native. But I don't know. I feel like... No, no, no. Kugler's a huge Warriors fan. Is Google he? it. Google it. And uh, as he Googles Kugler's Warriors fandom, um, we are going to... Move on to a brief discussion about one of our favorite movies, Sicario. Sicario. You might ask, how does that relate to basketball or, or basketball scenes in movies? It doesn't, but 
We're, well, there's there are soccer scenes in Sakari. And there's a deleted scene when Benicio Toro and Josh Brolin play <laughs> play one on play, one, play one on to one. see who's gonna take out the <laughs> to take out the the guy at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Benicio del Toro wins the one on one, right? Yeah. Well, after he decaps Josh Brolin. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me how a screen and roll works. <laughs> <laughs> for now, just just watch the tape, right? Uh, so yeah, let's just uh, let's go into Sicario. What, what year was Sicario? 20... 2015. 2015. 2015. Directed by Villeneuve. How do you yeah, pronounce Dennis his name? Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Charlie Villeneuve. No. Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. And written, but more importantly, I think written by Taylor Sheridan. Taylor Sheridan, yes. Taylor Sheridan with his, the first of his uh, modern American westerns. Um, really a, a great three-movie run that most screenwriters, in the span of probably four years, that uh, one of the most solid screenwriting runs we've seen in many years. So he does Sicario. He wrote Hell or High Water. And then... And he wrote and directed Wind River. Wind River. All of them are, have... Are there no, none of them, I would say, are perfect films, but all of them are excellent, and they, they do a lot of really interesting things. Yeah, and I'd say the closest to perfect... Sicario. Sicario. Would, would be the closest to perfect. We bring this up also because the, the, the Sicario name is being dragged through the mud mm-hmm. with the new movie, Sicario 2, which we won't get into because we like talking about good things. The name is being sullied, if you yes, will. Yes, the Sicario name. Taylor Sheridan wrote that as well. But I'm suspicious of how much his heart was in it. And, you know, they didn't... It, Villeneuve didn't come back to direct. A big part of Sicario 1 was Roger Deakins was the cinematographer on Sicario. Mm-hmm. Big up to Deakins. Just got his first Academy Award for his work on last year's Blade Runner 2049. He's finally recognized. He'd been nominated for so many. He, he did the cinematography on No Country for Old Men... And the assassination of Jesse James and the coward Robert Ford. A, a ton of really great movies from the mid-2000s that uh, have incredible cinematography uh, that he wasn't recognized for. He was recognized for Blade Runner 2049. I think he's a big part of um, Sicario. Some of the shots, some of the, the first scene when they're coming into that uh, the home in Arizona, I think. And it's the, you know, the raid. And yeah, the, the, den, the den. I want, I want to bring up the scene where they're... They go into into Juarez. Mm. It's just that like tense, like twenty minutes, and they're driving down the streets, and they know they know the uh, the uh, the the cartels coming after them, right? And they can like see the cars passing by, and you get those shots of Emily Blunt, she's just like tense in the back of the car. And the uh, the ones where you can de- the shots down the side streets, down the of side the state street. and federal or the state police that are trailing them. Right, because it's always a question in the film of who's on whose side, especially mm-hmm. which which uh, which police officers in both countries are beholden to the cartels. Right, and you really you're kind of you're kind of shown this scene through Emily Blunt's perspective, and she's totally a babe in the woods. Um, she, right, right up until she takes out some dudes. Right. Right, she ends up having to take... Right, exactly. But do you remember that uh, while they're going through Juarez, there's this shot and it's on a handball game? Yeah. That, and, and it's it like a one... Around. Yeah, it's a one shot and it kind of curves around counterclockwise and it's just tracking the car, but it's really like... It's like some of my favorite storytelling is, is, is shots like that where it just keeps on like something that is 
uh, inherent about the environment or the world that's being established to try to tell, like to try like, to move plot forward. Like life as normal. It says a lot about that neighborhood or that city in the movie as the hand players playing handball don't even really stop to look at it. Don't it's, even acknowledge it. It's such the, a regular occurrence to them. Right. The, the SWAT team. The, the SWAT team with the Americans and the... Right. And like at the end when they're, you know, the last shot of the movie, spoiler alert, I guess, is uh, a, ki- a kid soccer game in Juarez and there's a ton of gunfire and they stop. I don't know if it's in... Is it in Juarez? I'm pretty sure because it's the cop's family. It's in Juarez. It's, remember, it's the cop's son and... I always thought it was outside, like further south or something, but it could be. In, in, in Mexico. Irrelevant. But they, you know, they see a ton of gunshots and then like register it for legitimately two seconds and then just go back to soccer because that's life around here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so before we get into sca- uh, the scathing review from Slam on Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado, which translates to Hitman 2, Day of the Soldier... Um, which I just think is entirely goofy, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, let's just talk about our favorite parts of Sicario 1 real real quick. I can go first if you guys need to think. Sure. All right, I'll go first. My favorite scene of Sicario is uh, probably the interrogation scene when you, you are, you're uncovering more and more about Benicio Del Toro's character. Um, uh, you, you like really have no idea. You're kind of le- you're kind of in Emily Blunt's frame of mind of who is this guy? Is he a mercenary? Who is he working for? And you just kind of, you find out very uh, offhand offhandedly maybe is the word, but that his whole family was killed um, by the cartels, and that he's this totally revenge driven character who's just an utter badass. And he goes in to interrogate the person that they that they took from Juarez on a mission, some some local leader, and it does they don't torture him like you don't see him get tortured, but he brings a gallon of water on. You see Benicio Teltora enter the room and turn the camera off, and then turn the camera lens away, and just get so uncomfortably close to this guy, like straddles him almost, and gets right in his face, and then the scene cuts. But it really does a great job of. You know, not explaining to you, not holding your hand as the audience, but showing you that this guy is a badass. And I just love that scene. I would say a lot. One of the great thing about his character is the limited amount of dialogue. And I was reading here that initially the Benicio del Toro's character had a lot more dialogue, but they stripped him of a lot of it because, um, you know, less is more sometimes, especially with a character who's mysterious and brutal. And so. I would say what I like um, at the end once he's he's gone through the tunnel and back in Mexico and he's in the cop car with the the police he's more or less taken hostage and the police is driving and he starts talking about his family um, and I feel like a lot of movies would set this up for a kind of like a longer pleading conversation with the guy the hitman Benicio del Toro going back and forth and the guy pleading and all that's really said Benicio del Toro just kind of leans back and he says. Um, what you do is for your family now. You know, he didn't have to, you know, implying that he's dead no matter what. And all that, and then the driver, the policeman doesn't say anything after that because all the said has been needed to be said. Right. You don't, you know, less and more in the driving. And then after that, of course, there's a great set piece of him sneaking into the cartel leader's mansion to do his thing where he lets the car roll forward with the guy and then they take another guy hostage. Anyway, I thought that was a great bit of use of limited dialogue to convey a, a great message. Mm-hmm. 
Great. And then right before we get into you, Abigail, it just remembers, uh, it makes me remember when he's sitting with the mob boss at the end. And he goes, and the mob boss goes, what would your wife think of you now? Because there aren't a lot of words spoken. Benicio Del Toro's character looks him in his eye and goes, don't forget about my daughter. That's mm. uh, another true badassery. But what about you? What sticks out for you, IVK? DJ IVK. I would say, you know, the one, the one scene that has stuck with me, you know, is when he... It is the tunnel scene. It's that whole scene from, from start to end where they, you know, at the end they go into the tunnel. That when it starts the uh, the night goggles? The night goggles go on and they're they're doing the raid back and like you think you know what's going on, right? And then and then and then the stuff goes down. You get to the end of the tunnel, there's Benicio del Toro, there's there's right. Emily Blunt and I'm forgetting all the dialogue. You're gonna have to provide the dialogue here, but he well, I don't remember the dialogue. It's just like we we it's revealed to us as the audience for the first time that like there's a whole nother thing going on with this police force, this American police force. Right. And we're just shown it through Emily Blunt stumbling upon Benicio and del Toro. This is her like realizing Right. I'm way out of my league. Like this is this goes way deeper, right? And then Benicio del Toro pop pop pop. Right, right in the damn jacket. Right in the damn jacket. Because he he will not be stopped. He's on a mission, doesn't matter, good or bad. He doesn't deal in like moral absolutes. He right. he has to get done what he has to get done, yeah. And I'm gonna say I thought it was a little a little weak a little weak kind of the 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 ending of it though. Like I thought it was a little anticlimactic. Oh, when he visits her? When, when he, well, I, when he makes no, her that shine? was that was oof. No, I'm talking when he goes and like he uh he takes out the, the cartel family. I thought that was a little weak. Oh, I really? Felt Did you want a bigger gunfight? I wanted, yeah, I wanted some more explosions, I mm. think. But okay, just, well... That, well, that leads me to, you know, when, when I, I remember the Sicario trailer, and it was like Josh Brolin, Benicio Del Toro, and didn't really register that it was Villeneuve, and, I, you know, I'd seen Prisoners, and, and, uh, and I just saw Enemy. Crazy movie. But uh, he's great, and I didn't really know he was great yet. But I thought it was just going to be a shoot him up uh, like, use the Mexican drug cartel as an excuse to do a Fast and the Furious Point Break style heist film of some sort. You know, to go into that movie and basically get the apocalypse now of the of the drug cartel, uh, you know, I was just utterly blown away and, and the fact that it subverted that at every corner and the fact that the end, the end scene that you're referring to is so subdued was kind of why I love it. But but I get it. Like I definitely that was sub- I don't, yeah. I mean that was sub- like that there was just like wasn't drama there for me. It was like all the drama was in the like was in the Benicio del Toro Emily Blunt moments like after that, mm-hmm. right? After that where she, where he comes back and like yeah, forces her to sign the waiver. And, right, you're in a land of wolves now. Land of Wolves now. Go back to go back to a move to a small town somewhere where the rule of law still exists. Ooh. Direct quote, and he's not even I. He's not even on IMDb quotes page right yeah, there. Sicario slash quotes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so also special shout out to Benicio del Toro with the Wet Willy torture. Yeah, when he's t- John Bernthal, they're like torturing him in the back of a police car, and he yeah, just <laughs> Wet Willy's the shit out of him, and it looks. Horrifying. Ugh. Um, but yeah, so any last notes on Sicario? 
Oh, give us your little review of Sicario 2, Slam. So, Sicario 2 was a troubling movie for me. Mm-hmm. It was written by Taylor Sheridan as well, and it kind of it had the same screenplay feel. There was a lot of the same sharp dialogue and a lot of the same good set pieces, but as a whole, it kind of felt like they took a lot of ideas that were left off Sicario 1, put them in a blender, got rid of any like nuance, and then jammed them all together. It... It starts with this weird subplot about the Mexican cartel smuggling Islamic terrorists over the border, which is a dubious plot to start with <laughs> at this political moment in American history. Sure. But not necessarily unworkable. However, they kind of just drop that plot after half an hour and never revisit it, which I thought was a very weird choice. Like, maybe some stuff got cut, maybe other things... I'm, I'm of the opinion that I think the studio wanted to make more Sicarios and Taylor Sheridan's kind of getting... They're strong arming into writing this, saying, like, either you write it or we will. I could be off base. If so, I'll be very disappointed in Taylor Sheridan. Mm. But, um. Kind of ends the run. Yeah, and there's like, there's another part where, um, this is in the trailer where Benicio del Toro, they were taking out a lawyer for, um, one of the cartels, and they ambush him in the street. They're wearing masks and everything, but now that they've gotten him falling down on the street, Benicio del Toro's character takes off his mask throws the guy his glasses and then takes a handgun and does like a cool gun thing where he puts his finger in the trigger and like pop, 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 pop. But at this point, Benicio Del Toro's character is um, unmasked in the streets of Mexico City, brutally murdering a cartel attorney, which seems wildly out of character to me. (laughs) Like that just seems like the exact opposite of something that Benicio Del Toro's character would do and that the Sicario would have done in the first movie. Um, there's a great, I, the kidnapping plot is co- a little bit confusing, but I kind of liked it. There's a weird thing where Benicio Del Toro grows, starts like, uh, grows affection in a completely normal way for the daughter of a cartel boss who, in previous movies, we've seen him shoot cartel children, uh, like the children of cartel leaders without hesitation. So I think it was odd to me that he, um, developed an extraordinary affection for her to keep her alive. And then... It also had a weird thing. We, I guess, well, I'll spoilers ahead. Should I, should no, you spoil. Listen, we're gonna we're spoiling Sicario and Sicario Two: Day of the Soldado. Go For right the, ahead. Okay, but so Sicario Two, there's a part where Benicio Toro gets into trouble and he gets blindfolded, and the cartel guys actually have a, a young kid come and shoot him in the head, and it looks like he dies, and he's laying there in the desert dead, and you're like, oh, he's dead. You're like, mm, well, that's kind of interesting. But then, like in any, any like in the classic shitty movie turn, like cuts back to him a few scenes later and just <laughs> and guess what? He's alive. Uh, he like, survives a shot to he, the head. He survives. It went through his cheeks. So a lot of blood, but um, he survives, which is like Aww. I just think uh, it's, a, it's a shitty movie trick. It's like cheap. And then at the end, the very last scene, which is probably like the least tasteful, I thought, is this kid. Who is like, there's a great, there's kind of the same subplot as in the first, where in the first you had the kid, the soccer kid and his police dad, where they're going scenes to him and they kind of loop back at the end. There's a very similar thing in this movie, where a, a young kid in a border town in Texas was getting looped into the cartel life, uh, becoming a coyote, a coyote at first, coyote. He's yes. smuggling people across the border. There's a term for this. And then at the end, he's the one who shoots Benicio del Toro. Um, and then they're like, movie flashes forward to three years later. And then he walks into some fast food restaurant at the back to like get some money. And then guess who's standing there? 
by Benicio Del Toro. Oh, no. Who you're thinking, oh, is he going to kill this kid? He's like Bullet Tooth Tony in this one? Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> and then the kid, clo- like, he's like very shook because he knows this guy. He's the one who pointed him out. He's the one who shot him in the face. He like thought he was mad dead. Um, and <laughs> mad dead. Super dead. Super dead. And he comes back and he's just like, oh, is Benicio Del Toro going to like murk this kid in the back of this fast food restaurant in the strip mall? And no, you know what Benicio Del Toro does? He says, so you want to be a Sicario? And then closes the door and the movie ends. So now is Benicio Del Toro recruiting like cartel members to become Sicarios for him? Is why? Is he going to like use it to get back at the U.S. government that ditched him? Is he going to use it for his own personal gain? To- Listen, totally valid questions. Totally valid complaints. But I have a question for you, Slam, that, can really, that wraps up the Sicario talk quite nicely. Sure. You say Sicario 2 is like it's like Sicario's one's B-sides, if you will. I think it was like, I mean, there were a lot of scenes that seemed like they could have been in a sick. I mean, they fit, obviously they fit in thematic with Sicario 1, they just didn't fit well together, I thought. So, like some subplots and some scenes right. and some set pieces that could have fit well in Sicario 1, but didn't. So this seems like a classic case of Sicario 1 is like Sir Lucius Leftfoot and the son of Chico Dusty. Whereas Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado, is more like Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors? Is this fair? Is this a fair comparison? Um, I, think, I think we could see it in that way. I mean, it, was a, it would be a Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors had a very weird song about terrorism on it. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I think it's called In the A, Afghanistan. <laughs> Featuring Ludacris. Yeah, and I mean, there was some problem. At, like, there's... Um, yeah, there was just some concerning, like, uh, concerning political messages in the second one. The first one I thought was nuanced and had, like, balance and kind of, like, spoke to kind of the, the impossibility of the drug war. And the second movie just made some confusing, like, didn't really push that any further, didn't really ask any more interesting questions, and seemed to be more, like, fear-mongering and, like, cartel bad, U.S. good, or maybe U.S. bad, everyone bad, who know? <laughs> like, it was very, very, like, ham-fisted in its weird points. Mm. So, da- so vicious lies and dangerous rumors over Sicario Two. Yes. Okay. Better sequel to 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 its predecessor when talking big boy, not Taylor yes. Sheridan. Yes. Okay. And we'll see what Taylor Sheridan brings to the third one. I mean, there's also looking back on. I loved Wind River, but there's some small things about it that I found. Um, there, there are some problematic. There parts are some of Wind problematic River, uh, Wind River parts. Themes. I thought it was a great movie. Um, but there was certainly some glaring things that stood out, more so than in Sicario or Hell or High Water, both of which are... Have you guys seen Cartel Land? Yes. you seen Cartel Land? I've seen Snow on the Bluff. Yeah, that's a different... That's definitely a different <laughs> movie, for sure. No, I've not seen Cartel Land. But Cartel Land. Land is a great companion piece to Sicario 1. Yeah, it's I a, would for, uh, definitely recommend. Awesome. So, definitely Cartel Land recommend. is a documentary about vigilante groups on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border working to stop drug cartels. So it's a group of vigilantes on the Arizona border, I believe, who are trying to stop undocumented immigrants and cartels from moving drugs in, and then a group of farmers from Michoacan, I believe, who, right. who have created like a, their own army to deal with the cartels because they feel the Mexican government won't. And it's a very, it's an excellent document. Sounds like really this movie good. I like, Sicario. Yeah. <laughs> It's All right, Cartel Land. Cartel Land. Well, if you like Sicario, highly recommend Cartel, Cartel Land. Land Sicario bundle, mm, two pack. Gotcha. I would, I would definitely recommend. All right. Well, there you have it. Isaiah Thomas is going to be this year's MVP, 
And if you like Sicario, go watch Cartel Land. But uh, not Sicario 2. Um, I mean, if you really... I, I mean... It, I was wor- it was worth it? I don't regret seeing it. Well, how, how much did your ticket cost? Like 12 bucks. Ooh. See, theaters around me, they're like 18. Doesn't seem worth it. I don't regret seeing it. I wouldn't recommend it. Sicario 2, not recommended. Uh, g- go buy your Isaiah Thomas stock right now, outside an all-time low. Don't buy a jersey because it's unclear what team he'll be on, <laughs> but buy stock. Um, uh, let's go Griffin Vultures. Thank you, DJ Slam Dunkelman. Yes, good enough. Slam Dunkelman the Funkelman. And uh, DJ IVK, Griffin Vultures, over and out. Thank you very much. Suddenly love so again.